Hey, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where I chat with interesting people doing pretty amazing things that inspire me to get outside my comfort zone, and hopefully you guys as well. Today, I have the pleasure of having a conversation uh, with a young Kiwi dude currently residing in LA uh, by the name of Stephen McDowell, or better known out there on social media as the Buzzy Kiwi. Stephen's plan for his life hit a bump a couple of years back. Just out of uni and working as a self-employed personal trainer, an old rugby injury came back to haunt him. Undergoing what he thought was a routine surgery, he woke up to the news that the cartilage in his hip had started dying and he was experiencing arthritic changes. Instead of being back at work in the three days that he had planned, he couldn't walk for eight weeks, couldn't exercise for eight months, still can't run today. I got to talk with him on the podcast about what happened and then his re-evaluation of what was important to the way he lived his life. Today we chat about Stephen taking the time to learn about himself and taking that opportunity to reshape his life. Now he's traveling the world creating experiences and creating videos. We talk about how his passion was taken away and how he found a new passion learning new skills. Stephen lets us in on how he deals with uncomfortable situations and the process that he goes through. We talk about standing up to people. And we talk about how excited Stephen is to see what's going to come for him in the future. Stephen freely admits to making this up as he goes, but he wants people to know that anyone can do this if they work through that discomfort, uh, and he is a perfect example of it. So if you guys want to share the episode out, that would be much appreciated. And if you want to support the show as well, make sure to uh, subscribe to it on your favorite podcast app, leave us a review, send us a comment on, on Facebook or Instagram, or even Twitter. And Thank you for taking the time to get uncomfortable with me and Stephen today. Stephen, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. It's good to have a bit of a chat with you, mate, um, on this slightly cold Wellington morning. Um, I'm sure it's a little bit nicer there over in LA, though. Yes, blue skies and palm trees out my window right now. So <laughs> I miss home, but uh, I don't miss the winters, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I'm about to head off to Hawke's Bay uh, a little bit later this morning. Um so hopefully it's a little bit nicer up there for us. 
But mate, can you give me and the listeners a little bit of background about yourself, um, just for a bit of context for, for where the conversation goes, uh, kind of where you grew up, maybe some uh, formative experiences in your younger years? Yeah, for sure. I'm an Invercargill boy, South and lad. I uh, come from a single mother of four kids, and I'm the youngest. Uh, I have a brother nine years older, a sister seven years older, another brother five years older. So I grew up pretty fast. I was surrounded by uh, things that five and ten-year-old kids wouldn't go through. I had a pretty interesting and rough upbringing, being a single mother, Things I won't necessarily dive into today, but they definitely crafted me to who I am to have no father and have to kind of figure life out on my own. So I think I grew up, not necessarily in maturity-wise, but I grew up in my experiences pretty early on. So I started working at the age of 13. I had two jobs at the age of 15 and I had three jobs at the age of 16. And I started saving. I was working as a pizza delivery boy. I was working as a kitchen hand, uh, waiter. I worked in a truck welding company, sweeping floors. I delivered pamphlets. I mowed lawns. I cleaned gutters. I did everything I possibly could because we didn't have much. So if I wanted to do things, play sports, which I was huge about, most of my life was playing sports. That's all I was passionate about. I needed to pay for tournaments. I needed to pay for gear. I needed to pay for everything in between. So I started working. And what that built is a good understanding of money early on. So I started saving quite early. And so later on, we'll talk about how I started traveling. I was able to afford that because I started working from such an early age. Uh, I was in my last year of high school when I was working three jobs plus playing five sports. So I was pretty ADHD kind of all over the show, never stopped moving. Uh, And that's who I was for a long time. I ended up going to university and studying physical education and carrying on into the sports world because it's the only thing I really was passionate about in any way. And I think that's because I hadn't really experienced much being from Invercargill. But as I got older, I started experiencing more. But what I did is I finished my degree and I ended up becoming a personal trainer. I still worked two jobs. I worked in a bar as a bartender slash manager on the weekends, just always trying to save money because I knew that money, unfortunately in this world, money means freedom. So growing up with no money, you realize real quick when you have some, you can do a lot more. So I was all, I'm always been saving ever since I had my first job to do something, whether it was going to be buying a house, whether it was going to be starting a business, whatever it was going to be. And uh, I was playing rugby this whole time while I was going to uni and becoming a personal trainer. And I had ambitions to take it to the next level, but I ended up getting a rugby injury, which resulted in one hip surgery. And then that hip surgery failed practically, pretty much. The surgeon actually made a mistake and hit the head of my femur, which caused the hyaline cartilage to start dying and caused arthritis. So I was in quite a lot of pain for years. And it took about three years after that surgery to realize 
what had happened. So I went to another, a new surgeon and then got the second hip surgery. And that's when they found out that the arthritis, the joint had become, become arthritic and the hyaline cartilage on my femur was dying. So they didn't know that before they went to the surgery. So I came out of the uh, anesthetic after the surgery and the doctor comes in and tells me, and it's supposed to be, I have work in three days uh, as a personal trainer. It was supposed to be a routine checkup. He sits at the end of the bed and he tells me, I'm sorry, Stephen, but you have an arthritic hip joint. We had to cut out the dying cartilage, cause microfractures at the top of your femur, and we have to let that fluid that's coming out to create fibrous cartilage settle so you can't walk for eight weeks. You can't exercise for eight months. And you're probably going to need a hip replacement the more exercise you do from this point on. How did you was, feel at that point? Oh, man. I just went blank. I stopped breathing. I paused. But you know what? I genuinely didn't become afraid. I went straight into the thought process. Okay, shit. What do I have to do now? Straight away, it was like a... It's not like I was in life or death, but it was like a survival mechanism. I just went straight into, I need to sort something out because you're supposed to work in three days. Your career is exercise. Your whole education is exercise and it's gone. What are you going to do? You can't, there's no time to sit and mope because my job doesn't allow me to have ACC. I, I can't get covered pay because it's my own business as a personal trainer. So if I don't work, I don't have money. So I went straight into what now? And I had eight weeks sitting on a computer chair, pushing my way around my house, bedridden practically, to figure that out. And I still don't really think I have figured that out. That surgery was two years and two months ago. Yeah. Had you always been kind of a, a a planner and if something happened, you would just get straight into the, okay, how am I going to approach this? Fight or flight, I would definitely be a fight for sure. Uh, if it came to a situation where I had to either run or stand, I'd normally stand. So yeah, I would say it's not necessarily the planning aspect. It's just it would be more the how am I, I going to know how to this? Yeah, maybe it's a bit of a competitive nature. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely don't like to uh, feel like I've lost, even though everyone has to go through loss and you can't always win. I like to try and change it from being lost to being a lesson of some sort. So. As scared as I was, I got a little bit eager. I was like, okay, well, now you have an opportunity to completely rechange your life. And it might not necessarily be for the, the worst. For it could be a very good thing. So I started making plans when I was sitting, like I said, in the computer chair. I started researching and I found Camp America, which is 
a system where people from around the world can go to America for this, their summer and work as uh, instructors at these children's camps. Because when they over their summer holidays, it's very natural for parents to send their kids to summer camps. And that's where they get to do all their recreational activities. And they also get to experience things they wouldn't experience before, hang out with new kids. And to be honest, it gives the parents ability to keep working. So a lot of the kids are quite wealthy. It costs about $12,000 to go to these things. Okay. But uh, I end up getting a job with one of those, driving motorboats and teaching water skiing, which lined up with my education, but it was non-physical. So I just had to drive the boat and stand at the end of the boat and explain the process of water skiing to these kids. And I jumped at an opportunity. So with I started walking, and within about two months of walking again, I was on a plane. I'd packed up everything. I had sold two cars. I'd sold my bed. I'd sold my TV. I'd sold everything. I packed up all of my life into one second-hand bag I bought off Trade Me for $50. And I still have that bag today. I will carry on traveling with that bag until it falls off my back because it's been everywhere with me. Awesome, man. Um, why did you choose that option? I think, I mean, with, with the research you were doing, I'm assuming that you found other options and you had a bit of time to kind of ruminate on your situation and kind of process a bit of stuff sitting down for eight weeks. Why that option? What really appealed to you about that? Well, I've worked with children before. I uh, actually worked with a Dunedin-based school uh, with their special needs children and I would go on their camps even though it was not a three-month situation like in America it was only a week situation at a time and I would migrate the activities for the special needs kids so they could still participate and I genuinely enjoyed it I I find kids quite easy and my education with physical with physical exercise it does help a lot with the teaching aspect so that was a draw card. Also, it was going into winter in Dunedin, and I'm on crutches going uphill <laughs> when I could fly to the other side of the world, being there summer, sitting in a driver's seat of a motorboat on a private lake. I'm going to choose the sunshine because <laughs> I'm a sunshine kind of guy for sure. So that was definitely a draw card, the, the weather. And it was it just seemed right. It it happened at the right time in my life. It kind of came into my life very randomly. As creepy as Google is, I was on my emails and on the far right side an advert came up and it was of Camp America. And you know how people were saying, Oh, I'm pretty sure myself I was listening to what I'm saying because I go on Google and all of a sudden what I was thinking about comes up as my search option and a lot of weird things are happening. Well, that happened for me. Uh, Camp America came up on the right side and I was like, either someone's advertisement to me or this is a sign. And uh, I like to believe in signs. I like to believe in synchronicity. So I went with it. I didn't really look at other options once I set my mind on that. I kind of completely dedicated to that. And I didn't just apply for one place. I applied for uh, three different places. And I actually got accepted to three different places because being a New Zealander helps a lot. 
we have a very good uh, reputation around the world, a good work ethic reputation. And people like the accent. It's quite bizarre to be walking the streets in America and I'll be in the supermarket and I'll just be talking and people will come up and stop me and be like, oh my God, where are you from? <laughs> and they're so fascinated and they just want to talk about everything. And that's got some positives for making you feel good about yourself, uh, having people so interested in what you have to say. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, utilizing the accent is, is fantastic for that as well. And, and as you say, um, it does, it, it makes you kind of feel, feel good when people come up and start talking, talking to you. It's a good and, uh, icebreaker really for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Stephen, had you traveled much before going over to America? So when I was, I don't think I've actually told anyone this. <laughs> when I was when my first year uni, I got my course-related costs of $1,000 out and I bought $900 return flights to Samoa with five nights in combination included because I wanted to travel. I wanted, I'd, I'd never done anything. We'd been on one family trip my whole entire life and that was to the Gold Coast and that was it. I'd never been anywhere. So I was like, I want to go somewhere. So I went to Samoa and that was only uh, five or six days and it was a good trial. But then what I did is I treated myself at the end of my degree and I went to Thailand for five weeks over the New Year's period with a friend that I lived with as my graduation present to myself. And that was where my eyes really were blown open. I saw the world of traveling. I saw how people were doing it. I met backpackers who'd been on the road for years and I started to understand their philosophy. It was very similar to the student life philosophy. You only spend money on needs, not wants. And that's where I was like, I could do this. But I had a career back home. I had personal training. I had to get surgery. So I came back, obviously, because it was just a holiday. And then two months later is when I had the surgery. Everything kind of went bust. My life flipped upside down. And because of that Thailand experience, I said to myself, you know what? This is a really messed up sign. You need to go do this. You need to go see the world while you still can. It was definitely an eye-opener to the fact that one day I'm going to need a hip replacement. And like, yes, I'm a bit overdramatic, but my life was pretty much taken from me in regards to my normal day-to-day -day life had to completely change. Obviously, I wasn't in life or death situation, but when your career and all your education is kind of thrown out the door overnight, it definitely is a, a it can feel life or death for sure. <laughs> like you go through some pretty tough times. Yeah. So I took it as a sign and I left. So I'd only done those travels. So I'm off for a week in Thailand for five weeks, and then I left on my trip, which I didn't come back for two years. Awesome. That really just sort of shifted your perspective on experiencing things that that injury and the loss of, of movement after being so kind of physically capable before that. Is that kind of what, what your thought processes were? Yeah, I, like I said earlier, my whole life was sports. It's all I knew. It's all I had. 
And when that was taken from me, I needed to find a new passion. And because I, the only thing I'd really experienced as a passion other than sports was the traveling I did to Thailand. So I latched onto that, I think, as a survival mechanism. You need something to keep you going. You need something to keep, get you out of bed in the morning. Because when you literally can't walk, it's not easy to motivate yourself to do anything. So I set my new sights and my new passion on traveling. And I changed my focus of sports and my love of sports into my love of traveling. And I think that's how I got through it. Okay. How did you know that you kind of needed a passion with that? Because, I mean, a lot of people go through life without having too much of a passion or actually, if they have a passion, just kind of putting it to one side and leaving it. Yeah. To make yourself pack your whole life up and go by yourself to the other side of the world where you know nobody, it takes a lot of motivation and drive so i think if you're not balls to the wall passionate you're not going to be able to break out and do that it's not something you really just go oh i might kind of do it like you you kind of have to commit to it 100 percent or not if you have more money like i i did it on extreme budget but i guess if you had more money and you could get a return flight at the drop of a hat it wouldn't be such an issue but for me once I was there, I was there. It didn't matter what happened. I was kind of left to survive, especially in countries where they don't speak English because I spent a lot of my times in countries that don't speak English and I was on my own. Uh, you've got to be passionate to get through those tough times because it's not all rainbows and fairies. It, you go through some very anxiety-provoking times. You go through some dangerous times uh, and very, very uncomfortable times for sure. But it's all worth it for what you get to experience. Awesome. I want to have a chat with you about your travels in a minute. But you you mentioned something quite interesting there to me is that you're on your travels. And I've experienced this a bit as well is that you go through those those times that do provoke some anxiety and provoke those feelings of discomfort. Do you have kind of a process or an approach that you take when you run into one of those situations to help you get through it? To get me through uncomfortable sides, I always drop everything I'm doing because I always have my backpack. So it's 25 kgs or something crazy. I put it down in a corner somewhere where my back's against the wall so I know nothing's coming up behind me so I feel kind of safe. I sit down and I stay there until I've figured out what I'm going to do. Because at the end of the day, I'm in no rush. I'm traveling and I don't need to be anywhere. It's not like a job where I've got to be there at nine o'clock on the dot. I've got to have my work break for 15 minutes. I've got all the time in the world. So I would often sit 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes in an airport, in a bus stop, in anywhere until I've figured out what my next move is. And I think that's how I dealt with a lot of my anxiety and a lot of the fears of the unknown and the uncomfortableness of being alone, traveling in a country that doesn't speak the language or whatever the situation is. So, I mean, is that approach uh, one that you've kind of always taken 
is that you you'll stop and sit and figure it out or is this just started traveling not at all i was such a hyperactive borderline psychotic kid i was uh very full-on all the time and it's only until yeah i would say probably my surgery and traveling together is when i started calming down a lot a, a significant amount uh it took those that time when i couldn't walk to kind of internalize then i took the time of traveling obviously to learn about myself so it's definitely a new thing for sure uh what the idea I got from it was I, th- I don't like smoking tobacco. I think it's horrible and it tastes horrible. And I just, if I'm going to do something that's going to kill me, it should give me a high, not just make me feel awful. <laughs> so I thought, but why do people smoke if they're doing something that kills them? Oh, it, I figured out it was the moment of relaxation, the moment of uh, break, breakaway when they go outside and they've got five minutes to themselves and a deep breathing and they're rhythmically breathing. That's what calms people down, I feel, rather than the actual cigarette itself. So I started thinking, why can't people just do that without the cigarette? Just go for a five-minute break. Just rhythmically breathe and calm down. And I started implementing that while traveling because one thing, the more you get flustered, the more you speed up, the more you get flustered, the more you speed up, the more mistakes you make, the more flustered you get. It just becomes a death cycle. So to sit down and take that five-minute break clears your mind, sets you you down, grounds you, and lets you make a plan from there on. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And, yeah, as you say, that slowing down everything – it just gives you a little bit more clarity. You can focus on what needs to happen a little bit better and, and, and as you say, make better decisions about it. Yeah, which ab- is absolutely. Um, Stephen, I want to jump back, mate, uh, to to America and, and to your traveling, actually. So you went to Camp America. You're working there, teaching kids how to how to water ski, which is pretty awesome in, it, in itself. What happened from there? to keep you uh, keep you overseas for a couple of years? Well, I had the option. I could fly back to New Zealand at the beautiful cost of $1,300, or I could fly to London for the cost of $400. Uh, I was going to carry on. <laughs> so I had one month after I finished work, and I was able to do a bit of travel. And so the second day I left New Zealand, I didn't mention this before, because but the second day I left New Zealand, I went to a music festival in New York City, and I met a guy, and he has now become one of my best friends. And I go back to New York very often, and I stay with him. I just left his house a week ago. So after I then met this guy and then went to Camp America, and then after Camp America, I went back to this guy's place and hung out. And we actually ended up going to Puerto Rico together, and then... I went from his place to Toronto in Canada to see a friend that I'd met in Thailand. And I came back to New York and that's when I flew to London and I got to London and I didn't really like London. So I left straight away into Europe. I got the train into France and I went and started visiting people that I had made connections with at this camp America. So at the camp, there was a hundred staff all from around the world. And they were living all around the world. So I ended up going to Germany and meeting up with a guy I worked with at the camp. And then I carried on doing this, traveling to 
see people that I had met along my journeys because often when you meet someone, they're like, oh, yeah, man, if you're ever in Chelsea, come see me. Or if you're ever in Edinburgh, come see me. And I just started taking people up on that offer and I would go see them. <laughs> and the best thing about traveling and going with locals is you cut a lot of the bullshit. You're straight into what's the best, what's the cheapest, what's free. They've normally got vehicles to get around, so the transport, you don't need buses and trains and so forth. And you just get the inside scoop. And a lot of the time, I would stay with these people. They'd let me stay with them for a week, two weeks, sometimes even a month. And I'd sleep on their couch or even their floor or whatever they had. But what I would do when I stayed with these people, what is the biggest difference, and I would like people to know is, you're not a guest at these people's homes. You are a flatmate. You pull your weight. You still clean your dishes. You still do the laundry. You still cook and clean because that's paying your way and that's making you less of a burden on that person. Whereas if you're just a guest and you're kind of expecting a whole lot of things from people, they're not they don't have time. They've got their normal lives. They've got their normal jobs and you start to become a burden. And when you become a burden, you've got to leave. <laughs> so what I would do is I would cook and clean. I would, someone would get home from work at five o'clock. One of my friends I was staying with and I'd have dinner ready. And by the time they got home, their lounge was cleaned. All the bedding that I slept on the couch was folded up and put away. I'd even vacuum the floor if they had one, you know? So Anything I could do to really show my appreciation for them letting me sleep on their couch, putting a roof over my head, showing me the local spots. And that's how I traveled for literally almost two years. I constantly just started going to people I knew's homes in their countries. And I ended up traveling the whole Europe doing that, the whole of the UK doing that, uh, and 14 states in America, sorry, 14 states in America doing that. What did you do for money during that time? So because I had sold two vehicles, I'd been saving, like I told you, since I was like 15, and I left with selling everything, I had 20000 New Zealand dollars. So from then on, I obviously got the job at Camp America, which is not much money, but it's still money, and it's the biggest part of that is it's offsetting your living costs. They give you free accommodation, free food. So what else do you need? It's just the small things you need. So they'll give you an allowance for that. Then what I would do is when I was traveling and I was staying with friends and I would do everything I could to help them and they would allow me to sleep on their spare couch or whatever, all I would need then again was food. And transport is a cost, but when once you've got to, say, Europe, it's $20 or 20 euro bus to get 12 hours up the road. So you, if you're willing to take the bus rather than fly, so if one hour flight is six hours in a bus, so a two hour flight could cost two, three hundred euros, where a, a twelve hour bus could cost twenty. And I would just do that, and I would go visit people, spending twenty, thirty, forty euros maximum at a time. I got a flight from Germany to Ireland for nineteen euros. So transport's not really that big of a cost once you get there. It's just getting from New Zealand over there. Is the big cost, yeah, I think and that, accommodation is a killer. Yeah, I, I think that is kind of that's a challenge to the the Kiwi mindset is that we're so far from it anywhere that actually going 
and traveling is is a reasonable cost for for anyone from New Zealand. So, I mean, once yeah yeah once once you're there, actually travel is is pretty cheap, which is is something that you don't expect being being a Kiwi at times. For sure, and you, if you've ever been a student, especially you understand being a student in the Targa Uni, you learn how to live off nothing. And New Zealand is actually quite an expensive country. Our produce is quite expensive. And you go to other countries like Spain, if you live like a student, you can live for literally a quarter of the price that you live for in New Zealand. So I ended up spending five months in the Canary Islands. And uh, what I did there is there's a website called workaway.com and you can go on there and get work all around the world in exchange for free accommodation and free food. So there's no money exchange. Therefore, you don't need a visa and you can just offset your living costs and live in these locations and travel doing that. So I ended up going to the Canary Islands, which if people listening don't know, it's on the west coast of Northern Africa and it's a part of Spain. So they speak Spanish, and there's seven of them. And I end up getting a job in a hostel, working three night shifts a week, and getting free accommodation and food. And it was 20 meters from the beach. And the in the Canary Islands is the cheapest living in Western Europe, and because they have a lower tax due to the low income they have on the islands, so the cost of living is lower. So all I needed was a bottle of red wine and a couple of snacks and that's all I ever paid for because I had free accommodation free food and I wasn't really traveling anywhere except for the local bus around the island or the ferries between the islands which were like 20 30 euros so it ends up when you can get free accommodation through work or friends not being that expensive if you're willing to eat local foods and live like a student live off nothing so over this period of time, you you really haven't worked for money at any point? Not a significant amount of money, no. I ended up working, another job I did was I worked for a travel company called Stoke Travel, which again was they apply, they give you free accommodation, free food. They even gave free alcohol at this one because it was a travel kind of Kentucky-style company. And I worked at Oktoberfest in Germany in Munich for five weeks. And we created a camping uh, a camping portion of Oktoberfest to make it a camping festival for people that didn't want to pay for hotel accommodation because it's very expensive over Oktoberfest. And I end up doing that. And again, it's just living to get by. So yes, you're not making money, but you're also not losing money. All you're losing, if you call it a loss, is time. But really, I got to live in in Munich, Germany for Oktoberfest for, for five weeks and go to Oktoberfest literally, I think I went like eight, nine, ten times. Well, if I don't have to pay to do all of that because it's free admission into Oktoberfest, you just have to pay for the beer, which I was getting for free where I worked anyway. So you see how it starts to make sense when you're not really spending any money, but you're getting to have these once-in-a-lifetime opportunities like go to Oktoberfest, the true traditional Oktoberfest in Munich, Germany, practically at zero cost. It's pretty cool. It's it's just it's trading time for incredible experiences, basically. So it's yeah, it's you're no trading cost. time, pretty much you, time that you'd be spending elsewhere anyway. Mm-hmm. Now, mate, have you just kind of figured this out as you've gone along, or have you? 
uh, sort of had talked to people about this or adopted a set of principles around it to kind of work your way through it? Or it's just, I'm going to go and I'll learn as I go? I'll be honest, I am making this shit up as I go. <laughs> I genuinely am. I, uh, you, But in saying that, like-minded people end up in like-minded places. So through traveling, within a, a month to two months to three months, you meet so many people on the same journey. Through communication and through talking to them, like I had very similar conversations with people traveling as we are right now because you tell them your whole story. and they would teach you and you would teach them. And it becomes a community thing where you start to share knowledge, share locations, these secret spots that no other tourists know about, these secret cheap places to stay or free food to get or whatever it is, accommodation or transport. There's a community of travelers because we're all like-minded and we're all on the same journey. And you all end up in the same place because of that similar mindset. So, Yes, I'm making it up as I go, but I would be lying if I took full credit. I am definitely learning from people I interact with. But it's definitely something that you, I wouldn't say you can read up on and become good at. You really do need to just get out and get your feet dirty. Now, Stephen, I'm going to change tack a wee bit, mate. You also share your experiences and kind of share some of the stuff that you're doing uh, on your website and through through social media um, as the buzzy Kiwi. When did that come about and why did that come about? I went to Puerto Rico, like I said earlier, and I met a friend. One of my friend's friends is from Puerto Rico, so I met her and she was – explaining to me how she had 30,000 followers on Instagram and how you can make money from it. And I was like, what do you mean you can make money from Instagram? I, at this point, did not have an Instagram and I did not have a Facebook page, obviously, or a website, anything like that, but I'd never used Instagram. I just had Facebook. And she was telling me how people were using it for marketing platforms and to show their content and to like creative content. And I started getting interested. What is this Instagram? Okay. And I left it at that. But then about four months later, three or four months later, I created a Snapchat story of me hiking through these sand dunes. It was like a desert in the Canary Islands. And I started getting, it was, I started getting people that I hadn't talked to since I was like literally 12, 13 years old private snapchatting me oh my god man that was the coolest thing i've ever seen in my life i love watching your snapchats they're the best thing ever and i was like wow people are genuinely enjoying my shitty little handheld cell phone <laughs> snapchats this is weird and i had like i said i had people talking to me i hadn't talked to in so long so i decided you know what snapchat lasts one day i need to save these videos well, what's the point of just saving a Snapchat video? Why don't I just start filming on a real camera, just like I would for Snapchat? So I have a go had a GoPro, and I end up buying – this was the life-changing aspect. I end up buying a stabilizer for my GoPro. And this is a year and a half before GoPro had their own stabilizer. So it was very new, and it provided the very, very clear and steady uh, camera footage that I have in my videos. And I started making Snapchat-styled videos with this thing. And I 
didn't really know how to video edit, so I downloaded Adobe Premiere Pro Trial which for 30 days. I sat in a friend of mine's bedroom because he went to, long story short, he went to Hungary for three weeks and gave me his bedroom for three weeks. And I sat in his bedroom for three weeks and watched YouTube tutorials and created my first three videos. And I was like, oh, these are pretty cool. I kept them secret and I uh, did nothing about it. I left it for months. And I didn't really have motivation to get into the social media or anything like that. And then the game changer, uh, life-changing time was I went back to America after traveling through Europe for quite and the UK for close to a year. And I went to a music festival called EDC, and that's 400,000 people in Las Vegas, and it's the biggest single genre music festival in the world. And I ended up running into this group of people and became friends with them, and it just turned out that they were professional YouTubers. And I was like, what do you mean you're a professional YouTuber? I don't understand that. How, do, how can you make money off YouTube? Oh, through advertisement space. You know those little ads that come up at the start of videos? Well, companies pay YouTube for those, and YouTube pays creators for how many views they have because that means that's how many eyes saw that advert. And I was like, what? So you're telling me you make money off YouTube? Yeah, that's our job. That's what we do. So after becoming friends with them and them explaining to me exactly how they do it and how much money they actually make through it, which is ridiculous, by the way, is I got invited back to their home after the festival and I ended up living with them in West Hollywood in Los Angeles for one month while I created another, I think it was nine videos. So I had 12 videos in total. And then through their help, I filmed my kind of story uh, intro video and I created these all by myself by the way in regards to the video editing process but with the intro video I had help with people using like filming me obviously because I was being interviewed and I released those videos on October the 24th I think it was which is what seven months ago and kind of never stopped it took off people started liking them really took an interest in them i started getting really awesome positive uh, messages from people about how it motivated them to make a change in their life and it motivated them to go out and see the world and that was really cool like i had some messages that literally made me tear up i was quite overwhelmed so I got a passion, a huge passion from this. Uh, I loved ex- showing my experiences with people and bringing people along with me who would never normally have that experience. And the rest is history. I now try and create a video a week, and I uh, am living in Santa Monica in Los Angeles with my girlfriend, and we're going to carry on traveling and creating video content and trying to make this my career path. Brilliant. That's that's an awesome story, and yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. Uh, kind of once you start sort of thinking about that side of things, that at, hey, actually people are are making money off YouTube and making money off uh, off Instagram as well. Are you at a point where that can kind of sustain your travel, the money that you make from from those uh, platforms? I think the money. So I am nowhere near at a point to make money from uh, advertisement on YouTube. It's YouTube. You need a million views. 
roughly 1 million views equals about $2,000. So you can think it's actually quite difficult to get a million views, but then you've also got to remember some people are getting a million views on every video they post and they post a video a day. So you can see how some people are making a killing. But no, I don't make it through YouTube. I have made money through my videos, but it's mainly from video production. So I've got quite good at what I do in regards to video editing. And I've created videos for companies to use for branding. And I've been paid for that. And that's a lot more money than I would ever make uh, just being an advertiser like some people do on social media where they have a product and they're like, hey, buy Fiji water because it's good for you and they can get paid through that. But one day I could definitely well get to that point where I have a large enough following that I'm being paid simply to be wearing a nice watch or wearing a certain jacket because that does happen. People are getting paid on Instagram to simply do those things, but not at this point, no. It's mainly for my video production skills. Yeah. And those video production skills, I mean, you started with having absolutely no video production skills and you've just kind of self-taught yourself the the whole way through to get to this point. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's pretty cool. How long did it take you to do, be able to do that? Uh, Adobe Premiere. So that's the gold standard of video production tools. Uh, the only next one above that is Avid, which is the, what they create blockbuster movies on. You don't want to go that far. So Adobe is what you do. You want to learn if you want to do anything professional. So from where I'd go, I was like, right, I'm going to use the best software. I'm not going to start off with anything less. And I committed a whole month to learning that software's basics. And after one month, I created three videos. I would say... After that one month, I was able to video edit pretty much completely at the base, base level, very basic level. And then from then on, it's just learning effects. It's learning transitions. It's learning little, those little skill sets that help the quality of your footage increase, the, the engagement of your videos increase. But it really didn't take long. I would say three months of constant use of the program, I was able to start creating advert-styled quality uh, videos. So I just did a, a advert brand release video for Nutrient Rescue in New Zealand. And that was, what, six months after I... Six months to nine months after I learned how to video edit. That's pretty cool. And actually that's where I, that's where I first came across you mate is that, uh, is that advert for nutrient rescue. Awesome. How'd you like it? You enjoy it? I loved it. Eh? Yeah, it was very yeah. cool. It was very cool, cool actually. That's my pride and joy. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice. No, uh, yeah, very, uh, very positive comments from me on that one. Awesome. That video has such a crazy backstory. It's unbelievable, but that's for another time. It is. It is. <laughs> so, Stephen, what do you want people to take away from the stuff that you're doing and, and the messages that you're putting out there? I want people to know that I am 
a boy from the bottom of the world. I'm from Invercargill, a small town. I'm from a single mother for we have no money. We've never had money. I worked for this and I achieved this simply because I was willing to put myself through the discomfort and leave. So many people in New Zealand could do exactly what I'm doing. So many people in the world could do exactly what I'm doing, but you've just got to get out of your bubble. It's so easy to stay content from in the location from where you were born and raised. But there's such a big word out there and you've got to understand is that everyone in this world is working to get by. So why do you have to work to get by in your hometown? You can work to get by anywhere. And once you do start venturing out into that world, you never know what's going to happen. Like I never, ever predicted when I left traveling that this is what I was going to be doing now. I was going to be creating videos and I was going to be on social media. I didn't even have an Instagram. Like anything can happen when you finally break out. And I want to show people that. Awesome. That's that's pretty cool. Um, so, Matt, what does the kind of next couple of years have in store for you? Oh, dude, I haven't planned three months ahead of myself <laughs> for like two years. And that's no joke. I literally don't plan uh, too far ahead because I like to have my the ability to completely change what I'm doing and accept any offer, any any invitation to go anywhere, any invitation of a job, any invitation of for anything. I don't want to have any restrictions. But if I had to make a general answer of what I see myself in the next couple of years, I do want to return to New Zealand eventually and have a base there and travel from New Zealand rather than living out of a backpack for years on end. So uh, I would really like Mount Monganui and the Tauranga area. I think it's absolutely beautiful and I like I said I don't like the cold so it's a lot warmer up there than in Chicago and Dunedin so I could see myself living there and traveling from there I would love to turn my uh, video production and my social media into a more of a presenting kind of emceeing broadcasting role where I'm able to travel like a David Attenborough style and narrate and discuss and talk with people rather than actually doing all the production level stuff and the filming myself. But I understand that you've got to kind of work your way up and do everything in the industry before you can actually stand in front of the camera and solely stand in front of the camera. But long-term, I would love that. I would really love to become some kind of voice and uh, not have to sit in front of a computer screen and video edit for a week on end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's cool, and I mean, I think that with with that, it, it gives you a real insight um, going through every step of the process yourself into kind of what's involved, and then what you enjoy within that process and what you don't, and yeah. hopefully getting to a point where you can kind of transition away from the stuff that you that you don't enjoy so much. Because there are people out there that are going to enjoy doing that stuff and kind of focusing more on on what you want to be doing, but still having that knowledge around, hey, this is this is everything that's involved with it, mate. I've got a couple more questions about your about your travels. Um, the first one is you, you've got this fifty dollar backpack. What, yeah. What do you have inside it? Like, what do you travel with? 
I literally could name everything in that backpack, man. I have packed that thing so many times. I have a first aid kit. I have a jacket, one jersey that will keep me alive no matter what. It's like a waterproof kind of like uh, dries a bone jersey. I have about seven T-shirts, about seven pairs of underwear, about seven pairs of socks, one pair of shoes, uh, a beanie. Uh, my camera equipment and a laptop. That's it. I have. I have. And the, actually, sorry, I do have one other thing, and it's a lifesaver. That is a waterproof backpack, like a roll-up kind of satchel styled. Uh, people use it for fishing and diving. That's what I have, and I have that on my bag anywhere I go. That's an adventure-styled thing. So my cell phone, my wallet, my camera is always going in that waterproof bag, and that way I know no matter what happens, they're going to be okay. I have that also. Cool. Yeah, there's really nothing exciting at all. <laughs> it's very, very basic. And what's more terrifying is the fact that that's everything I own. <laughs> I don't have anything else at home. Like I don't have stuff at my mum's place. I don't have stuff anywhere else. That's literally everything I own. That's that's pretty awesome. That's pretty minimalist. Um, but yeah, that's that's cool that you've been able to sort of live like that for the last couple of years. Stephen, you I've definitely some- learned the difference between a want and a need. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got some uh, questions that I like to ask everyone towards uh, towards the end of our chat. Um, the first one is, can you tell me about a time that you failed and what you learned from it? Like I said earlier, I like to try and not think of myself as losing and failing and try and think of things as lessons. But something I failed, and I'd have to be completely honest, something I didn't mention was I, through this whole life-changing flip, uh, when I was in New Zealand and my hip surgery happened and my career was over and I decided to travel, I actually had a girlfriend uh, of four years and we're in quite a serious relationship. And through my life-changing venture across the end of the world, we tried to keep it going. We tried to make it work. But to be honest, I, f- I failed. I I did not do well, and there's no uh, making excuses for it, really. I stuffed up, and I failed at that, but I learned a lot, and I am who I am today because of that experience, but that's probably one of my biggest failures, for sure. It was was a big life lesson. What was the last uncomfortable thing that you did? Uh, and how did you get through it? Uh, what, well, there's kind of two. I'll go with one. I came back to New Zealand after two years of traveling, and my mind had kind of been blown open in regards to things I'd experienced, and I had a very open mind to people. I have no sexism or racism or homophobia or anything towards anybody. But being from Southland, being from Invercargill, the reality is that still exists down there. So I went to a family reunion, and I 
didn't mention, but my friend I met in America after two days of being in America at a music festival, he's actually gay. And he's my first gay friend, and he's one of my best friends. And I had to have a discussion with my uh, family. I won't name specifics, but some members of my family who have a problem with homosexuality, and they genuinely are against it, and they don't believe in it. And that was very, very uncomfortable. Uh, I had to sit in like a board-style meeting around a table and just talk to my family about how it's not okay for them to judge my friend because of his homosexuality. And that was uh, interesting. That was a really interesting thing to go through. Very uncomfortable, I can tell you that much. It's not. I never really stood up to my family before. I'm the youngest, and I've always been a kid. And I kind of left New Zealand as a kid, and I came back a bit of a man. And uh, it was the first time I really stood up and didn't back down to my family. Did they? How did they react to that? Did they kind of accept that from you? Yeah, they definitely it definitely shifted some uh, some kind of hierarchy in the in the family. Not saying that I like jumped up in hierarchy, but more so it was a uh, eye opener to the fact that I am now an adult, and they need to realise that, and they need to treat me as such, and also I need to treat them like I'm an adult. Also, I can't go to them with kind of children issues, so. It was a turning point for me in regards to uh, reaching that point of uh, adulthood amongst my family. I'd been seen as the youngest and seen as a little kid all my life until that moment. So I think it was tough for my mum to see her young boy kind of being a 24-year-old man, but it was good. It was really good. I think the one of the... Uh, final things my uncle said to me was well I have respect for you because I know that your moral compass is right so even though he didn't believe in the fact that I had a gay friend he still believed that my moral compass as a man as a young man was right so I think we ended positively but we definitely ended agreeing to disagree I don't think I changed their minds but they also didn't expect me to change my mind either. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I, and I think with with that is that it, it's hard to it's hard to change kind of people's mindsets just with one conversation. Often that does take sort of a a whole range of uh, of different chats with with yeah. people. Yeah, well, it and it's also time. when people have known one thing their whole life and they've been fed one truth their whole life, it's hard for them to be told something different. Yeah, yeah. Stephen, what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do and why is that uncomfortable for you? The next thing I'm going to do, I actually got motivated by the experience of my family and I know through conversations with my friend who's homosexual and also other friends I now have who are gay I understand the pain that they go through on a, through their lives and the discomfort they have to go through of hiding themselves so I'm actually I've gone out of my way and I've filmed a uh, 
gay pride video from the eyes of a straight man. And I'm going to release this in the next couple of weeks where it's going to address the issues and and actually the uncomfortableness of the gay world for the straight world. So people can see that it's not something scary and it's not something, I don't even know what people think of it, but to show that it is good and it is true and it is real and it is fine. I'm going to release a gay pride video and that's going to have some backlash. That's going to have some backlash with my family. That's going to have some backlash with my friends, especially my friends down South. Uh, the way I'm going to word it is going to be like, I am personally coming out of the closet and at the very end of my video, I'm going to state that I'm not, but people aren't going to actually watch to the end of the video and they're going to judge me straight away. And there is a bit of homophobia in New Zealand, unfortunately. So I think there will be a bit of hate and a bit of uh, negative comments, but I'm willing to go through that. I'm willing to, for people to know what I stand by and for people to know, uh, I don't want to use the word the truth, but the truth. Yeah, that's very cool, man. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to watching that one as well. It's going to be interesting, that's for sure. <laughs> it will be. It will be. So, I mean, knowing that you're going to get negative reactions to this stuff, this is this is very different to releasing a cool video. Uh, at Oktoberfest or diving in lakes in Iceland. Are there kind of um, different thought processes <clears throat> that you're having to go through to kind of psych yourself up to put that out there? Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I've gone off it many a times. I've had very long conversations with my friends about it. I have... I don't, I'm not going to just chuck this one together like I do with the other ones. The other ones I get done in a day, two days, three days, and I kind of just make the best I can in one go and then release it. Whereas this, I feel so much more connected with it. I want it to be perfect. And I think my perfectionist side is going to inhibit me because I have been working on the same video for like a month now on and off because I get frightened by it because I know I don't want to do it ill justice. I want it to be perfect. And because it's got such a message and because it's so different to what I usually do. So it has taken me a lot of drive, a lot of motivation uh, to do it. And only until a couple of weeks ago, I, I wasn't going to do it. But after going to see my friend Chaz in New York and staying with him and being around him again, it's the last motivator I needed to say, no, this is a good thing. You're doing a good thing. Go through with it. That's very cool, man. That's very cool. Stephen, I have a couple more questions for you, mate, before we wrap this thing up. But I just want to say thank you very much for, for taking the time to sit down and have a chat with me today. It's been awesome to connect with you and, and hear more of your story. But also I want to thank you as well for putting what you're doing out there and, and being an example to people of what is possible um, and kind of showing people how to push your comfort zone 
and kind of continually challenging yourself with that as well as that you've you've gone out there you've traveled then you've gone and started throwing these videos out there as well to inspire people and after doing that as well you're kind of pushing a little bit more with the with the new videos that you're doing um and and kind of creating a positive message out there in the world so thank you very much for that mate cheers thank you i appreciate the support oh no worries and if you're ever in wellington i know it's not that exciting but come and come and hang out and we we can travel around wellington yeah for sure definitely <laughs> um so Stephen, a couple more questions for you mate the first one is pretty easy if people want to support you, if they want to follow along with your story, what it is that you're doing, where can they go? How can they do that? My two major platforms are Instagram and Facebook. I do have a website. I do have a YouTube. Have a look at them if you want. But it's mainly my Facebook and Instagram where I post my most relevant things. So Facebook's where I post the videos and Instagram's where I have my most relevant uh, photos. So if you want to see where I am in the world, instagram at that specific time but if you want to see my adventures facebook uh but yeah like i said websites there youtube's there i even have a snapchat but use what you wish cool and i'll fire some links into the notes for the show for that as well I usually ask people at the end for a little bit of kind of advice for the listeners, but I'm going to do something a little bit different for you. Um, now, in your kind of in your sort of uh, explanation video, you mention kind of being at the end of the li- end of your life and kind of looking back and being able to tell your grandkids your three best experiences. Now, obviously, you're going to have a lot more experiences moving forward. But based on kind of what you've done so far, what are your three best experiences? Oh, three best. Wow. That's on the spot. All right. I would say one definitely would have to be the sand dune uh, desert hike I did through the Sahara Desert, a portion of the Sahara Desert, which is on the bottom of one of the Canary Islands. I have a video about it. It was life-changing. It was incredible. And I'll never forget it. And it cost me $20 in total. So that's up there. A uh, uh, second one would be I went to a festival, a seven-day festival in the heart of Budapest and Hungary, which is 400,000 people living on an island, a self-sufficient island built by gypsy styled labor where everything's recycled and everything's man-made and you camp there and you live there for seven days and that was definitely up there as well uh and the third one i would have to say diving in iceland and practically freezing cold zero degree water between two tectonic plates that was up there (laughs) that was a surreal experience i've never experienced quite that kind of pain in my life the cold on your face is like getting stabbed with uh, daggers but also at the same time there's a clarity in it and it's uh it was a surreal surreal experience and i have a i actually have a video of that as well 
that's what I love about my videos. I can actually <laughs> show people and look back on myself of my best moments in my life. So, yeah, I would say those three so far off the top of my head. Awesome. Uh, that's very cool, man. Um, and if you did have any advice to, to leave our listeners with, uh, what would that be? If you want to do something you only have now, there is no tomorrow. So you've just got to go and start doing it now because tomorrow not, might not come and you'll always regret that you didn't do it today. Awesome, man. That is a great note to finish on. Thank you very much for getting uncomfortable with me today. <laughs> no problem, mate. It was my pleasure. There you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed Stephen's conversation with me. Uh, I had a great time chatting with him. He's an interesting dude, and he is just creating some amazing life experiences uh, probably my favorite quote from the, the episode is when he said, it's not all rainbows and fairies. You go through some very uncomfortable times, but it's worth it for those things that you experience. I think that's, that's kind of one of the th major themes of the podcast. So uh, he summed it up reasonably eloquently there. Um, I also want to just let you guys know as well that I'm starting to do something a little bit new too in that I am uh, writing some short pieces just about my takeaway points. Um, so Stephen's one will be published uh, on the blog part of the website in a couple of days. You'll be able to find Jack Candlish uh, last episode there as well. Uh, also posting them out on Medium as well. So there'll be a link to that in the notes for the show too. Thanks for listening all the way to the end, guys. Make sure to like the episode, share it out with your mates, leave a comment. They're always greatly appreciated. And thanks for getting uncomfortable with me and Stephen today.